invite you to turn to Colossians chapter 1, if you would. Be in Colossians again this morning. The people at the church at Colossae, these Colossians that Paul's writing to, they had a problem. And they had a problem that you and I have as well. The problem they had is that were those, there were those among them, those outside the church, some threatening to creep into the church, who were saying that Jesus was not as great as he said he was. There were some who were seeking to diminish the person and work of Christ, saying that he was less than God, saying that his work on the cross was great, but it was not enough to save you. There were some people who were claiming that you need more than Jesus. And we face the same problem today. But the book of Colossians serves as a powerful antidote to such errors. I want you to look in verse 15 of chapter 1 with me. We covered the first half of this text last week, but I'm going to read the whole thing in its entirety. Colossians 1:15. He, speaking of Christ, this beloved Son of God, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through Him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace By the blood of his cross. Here in Colossians 1, we have recorded for us a magnificent hymn of the glorious supremacy of Christ. As we mentioned last week, this is one of those peaks on the highest mountains of glorious passages in the scripture that tells us who our Savior Jesus Christ is. We saw last week that Christ is supreme in his divine nature, that he is the image of God. And we saw also that he is supreme as creator. He made it all. He owns it all. He sustains it all. It all exists for him. But you might ask a question in light of that. If that is true, then why is there so much wrong with the world? If God is is so powerful, if through Christ all things have been made and all things are now being held together. If, as we talked about last week, there's not a rogue Adam in the universe Because Jesus wills it to hold together. Then why is there so much wrong with the world? Why is everything so broken? Why does everything seem so out of control? Is this what he intended? The answer to that question is no, this is not what he intended. This is not the way things were supposed to be. And the problem with the world, the problem with society, the problem in your heart, the problem in your home, The problem in our world is not economic disparity. The problem is not a lack of education. The problem is not a few bad apples who spoil a mostly good human population. The problem with the world, the problem with you and me, is sin. Genesis 3 tells us that sin has brought the curse of corruption and death to the human race and to the entire created order. A great rebellion against God has brought about disorder to his creation that was once called very good. 
deterioration, corruption, disorder. But it will not stay that way forever. The good news that we see here in Colossians 1 is that the cosmic Christ who created all things and now sustains all things has drawn near in the flesh to redeem his creation. He is at work bringing about the redemption of his good world, working towards a restoration and a renewal of all things. The central idea for this text and our sermon this morning is that I want us to consider Christ's supremacy as the redeemer and reconciler of all things. This is one of those passages that lifts up Christ to us so that we can gaze upon his glory and behold his majesty. And I just want you to stare right into it this morning. And understand with me, first of all, we see his supremacy in the redemption of the church. Look in verse 18. Picking up kind of mid-breath here as Paul is extolling the glory of Christ. He says, and he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Paul says that Christ, first of all, is the head of the body, the church. Now, there's a lot of different metaphors that, that are used to describe the church in the New Testament. The metaphor of a living temple, that we are like stones built together. There's uh, the metaphor of a family, that we are brothers and sisters, children of God, members of the household of God. There's the metaphor of the vine. But perhaps the most common metaphor we find is this metaphor of the body. This underscores the truth that the church is not just an institution. It's not just an organization. The church is a living organism made up of members who are united together. An organism whose union with Christ is both vital and very real. If you cut off the head, then the body dies. If the body rejects the direction and control of the head, you might be alive, but you have some serious dysfunction going on. The body becomes useless in that case. If you cut Christ out of the church, if you reject his lordship, then likewise the church itself dies. It will cease to exist. As the head, Christ is the source of our life, but also as our leader, our chief, he's the one from whom we take our direction. It's not the pope, thank the Lord. It's not any pastor. It's not any committee. It's only Jesus. It is his church. He leads it. He sustains it. He has authority over it. Christ is supreme in the church as the head of the church. The church is no man-made institution. It is his very body. But Paul tells us that Christ is not only the head of the body, but he tells us also that he is the beginning. You could fill in he's the beginning of the body, the beginning of the church. When Jesus came to earth in his life, in his teaching, in his death, and in his resurrection, Jesus has brought about something new. And I want you to think about this somewhat in parallel to what we saw last week with Christ's work of creation. Jesus is the founder of the church. It all starts with him. Just as Jesus is said to be before all things in reference to creation, like we saw last week, he is also the beginning in reference to the church. The agent of creation who brought about the universe by his power is at work now initiating a new creation. What was lost in Eden is being restored, and in salvation, we are experiencing the first taste of this renewal. The New Testament uses this language of creation to refer to what Christ is doing 
in gathering people together in the church. Listen to 2 Corinthians 5.17. It says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is, what? A new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Paul uses this language also in Ephesians chapter 2. He says, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Christ, in building his church, is creating a new people. Now think about this in terms of what's gone wrong with the world. God created the world through Christ, and it was very good, but sin has corrupted and distorted and brought death and brought the curse. But Christ is the beginning of something new. This body, this church, is the beginning of a new creation. God is not content to leave the human race in our state of rebellion and spiritual death. Jesus calls us to himself. Jesus cleanses us from sin. And Jesus commissions us to take this good news to the world, initiating a new thing, joining Jews and Gentiles, rich and poor, male and female, together in the body, the church. Just as Jesus is the author of creation, Jesus is also the beginning of the church, a new creation. Paul continues, not only is Jesus the head of the church, the beginning of the church, he says he is the firstborn from the dead. The firstborn from the dead. Just as Jesus, as we saw last week, is the firstborn over all creation, meaning that he owns it, he has authority over it, he ranks over it all. Jesus is also the firstborn in the new creation, the firstborn from the dead. Now, if you read the Bible, you'll see that there are several different accounts of resurrection. We find them in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. The prophet Elijah uh, raised a woman's son to life. The prophet Elisha, likewise, raise someone from the dead. We see that Jesus raised a young boy and a young girl and his friend named Lazarus from the grave. So there are other resurrections in Scripture. Paul even raised a young man named Eutychus who fell asleep during a very long sermon, fell out of the window and died, raised him back from the grave. I can't do that, so if you fall asleep this morning and topple out of your chair, we can pray for you, but I I can't raise you from the dead. That's a rabbit trail. I didn't intend to go there. But there are other resurrections in Scripture. But the resurrection of Jesus stands apart from all those other resurrections. How so? In this way, all of those people were raised back to life only to die again. But the resurrection of Jesus Christ is unique. Jesus was the first to rise from the dead never to die again. When Jesus came out of the grave, he had a different kind of a body. He had broken the power of death. A glorified body that was immune to sin, immune to death, immune to cancer. Something new was going on in the resurrection of Jesus. This is a new kind of resurrection. And Paul declares that Jesus is the firstborn from the dead. The first of many. Those who belong to Christ now share in his resurrection life. And we are destined to follow suit, destined to partake in a future resurrection that is like his so that we too will receive glorified bodies and never die again. In 1 Corinthians 15, 20, it says, In fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. 
That implies that there are more to come. Jesus is the first, but he will not be the last. Romans 8, 29 says, Those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he, speaking of Jesus, might be the firstborn among many brothers. God intends to raise many from the grave, never to die again. Jesus is the firstborn of these resurrected souls. But he is not just the firstborn because he's the first in chronology, the first in reference to time. But firstborn also refers to his rank, that he is the greatest of all who will rise from the grave, the one who possesses all power and authority. You might say, why? Why why is Jesus the firstborn in terms of rank and power and authority when it comes to this resurrection? Well, here's the reason. Because it was the power of his resurrection that actually makes our resurrection possible. It was Christ's resurrection that shattered death's chokehold on us. It was because Jesus rose that we too will rise. Jesus said himself in John 14, 19, Because I live, you also will live. Romans 5, 10 says, If while we were enemies... We were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. There is saving power in the resurrection of Jesus. The power to save us from the grave. Jesus is supreme. Jesus is the firstborn. Paul says that Jesus rose from the grave For a reason, look with me again in verse 18. He is the head of the body of the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. And what is the aim of this resurrection? What is the goal of this creating a new body? What's the the aim of establishing his church? Here's the reason. That in everything, he might be preeminent. Christ was raised from the grave So that he might be exalted on high. So that he could be enthroned as king. Fulfilling all of God's promises about the Messiah to come. Christ rose from the grave so that his glory, get this, could be eternally seen and worshipped. We're unlike every other religious person in the world. We don't worship the memory of someone who died. We worship a living Savior. Whom one day we will see. No longer beholding him by faith, but with our very own eyes. He has been resurrected so that in all things he might be preeminent. So that his righteous rule might become universally enforced as he reigns forever, both over the created order and also over his redeemed people. Carrie read for us earlier as we were singing from Philippians 2. I'm going to read it again. Think of it in this light, that Jesus rose from the grave so that he might be preeminent. It says, Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him. There's resurrection language there. Highly exalted him. And bestowed on him the name that is above every name. This is Christ's preeminence. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. 
in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus is and will be seen as preeminent. He's been raised from the dead, exalted by the Father, granted the throne that he might reign forever and be eternally seen as the supreme Savior and King. Just as all things in creation were created through him and for him, so also his work of redemption and resurrection have as their aim his eternal preeminence. I want you to think about this just for a moment. If this is who Jesus Christ is, and if this is true about his preeminence, how absolutely wrong It is for us to treat Jesus Christ as anything less than absolutely preeminent in the church. How absolutely wrong it would be for us to speak about Jesus as simply a resource to meet people's needs. As simply a side garnish on a platter that's filled with lots of other attractive things. Sprinkle a little bit of Jesus into your life to make things better. No, Jesus is the head. He is the beginning. He's the firstborn from the dead. And in all things, he must be preeminent. I think a lot of us nod our heads in agreement. We believe this. Yes, Christ must be preeminent. But let's get personal. Is he preeminent in your heart? Is he preeminent in your time? Is Christ preeminent in your finances? Is Christ preeminent in your thoughts and affections? He should be. He must be. He's the resurrected Savior who's bringing a new creation into existence through his redeeming death and resurrection. Christ's supremacy is seen in his redemption of the church, accomplished by the power of his resurrection. But there's more. Christ's work is not limited to building his church. Jesus isn't saving individual sinners and letting the rest of it burn. No, look with me again as Paul continues in this hymn, verses 19 through 20. And I want you to understand how this connects to this thought of preeminence. He finishes verse 18, saying that in everything Christ might be preeminent, verse 19, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven making peace by the blood of his cross. So Jesus must be preeminent because he's the head, he's the firstborn from the dead, but here is more fuel for you and I to understand and embrace the absolute preeminence and supremacy of Christ. Paul says, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Now this statement, if you kind of research the history of Colossae and the unique error that they were dealing with, this is a direct rejection of the idea that the divine nature was spread and kind of divided up between all these heavenly beings, angels and spirits and different emanations that that proceeded from the true God, and Jesus just being one of many. This is a direct rejection of that. It's a direct rejection as well of saying that Jesus had only part of that divine nature, that he was less than fully God. As Jesus himself declared three times in the book of John, I am in the Father and the Father is in me. All the fullness of God was pleased to dwell 
in Christ. As Jesus said in John 10, I and the Father are one. No wonder death couldn't hold him. No wonder Jesus must be preeminent. What is said of Yahweh in the book of Isaiah, my glory I will not give to another, can be said about Jesus as well, because in him all the fullness of God is pleased to dwell. So that's fullness, full deity, the fullness of God in Christ. As we looked at last week, he is the image of the invisible God. So that's fullness. But what does it mean, this idea of pleasure, that the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. I think this has to do with why. Why all the fullness was pleased to dwell in Christ. Why did Jesus come to earth? What is the purpose of his incarnation? I believe that this speaks to his good and gracious purposes. All the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in him, pleased to draw near to us. Why did God, the Son, become a man and take on flesh and dwell among us? Paul tells us, verse 20, And through him to reconcile to himself all things. Jesus, the agent of creation, that creation is marred by sin, distorted, damaged, under a curse. Enter Jesus, the agent of reconciliation. The one who comes to deal with that tragic fall. Through him to reconcile all things. There's a parallel here again to the first section of this hymn, rehearsing his power as creator. The one who's the creator is also the one who's the reconciler. And this, Paul says, is pleasing to God. You see, since the the fall of man, since Adam and Eve sinned, all the way back in Genesis chapter 3, man has been at odds with each other. I mean, we see Adam and Eve bickering. We've been at odds with creation. The ground resisted Adam's efforts to cultivate it. And we've been, most importantly, at odds with God. But God has not given up on the world. He intends to reconcile all things through the work of Christ. This is his good and gracious purpose that he's accomplishing through his son, Jesus Christ. And notice the scope of this reconciling work. Does he reconcile certain things? Does he reconcile some things? Does he reconcile many things? No, what does it say? You guys can read, even the kids. He comes to reconcile what? All things. All things. This is comprehensive. Just as his work of creation, through him were made all things. Through him are sustained all things. So also this work of reconciliation is comprehensive. All things. This refers to several, several different, there's several different senses here that I want to unpack. First of all, all things refers to the natural realm, the natural realm, the created world, the physical universe, because there is conflict in the cosmos, isn't there? The strong eat the weak. Our bodies grow old and break down. Disease and death. Second law of thermodynamics. Everything is unraveling and has been since Genesis chapter 3. There is conflict in the cosmos. But one day all things will be restored and made right. One day the curse will actually be undone. Paul speaks about this idea in Romans chapter 8. He says that the creation itself waits with eager longing 
for the revealing of the sons of God. Paul says creation itself is waiting for something that's going to happen in the future. The revealing of the sons of God, that's at the second coming of Christ. Paul continues that the creation was subjected to futility. That's the curse. Not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Paul says creation itself is groaning, longing for that day when it won't be the way that it is today. When it won't be broken. It won't be cursed. It won't be distorted by sin and death and disease. This is why we sing at Christmas No more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. Those are powerful words. We sing them with a lot of familiarity at Christmas. But we're celebrating the fact that Jesus comes to make all things right, to make all things new. Christ's purposes for his original creation have not been lost. They have not been abandoned. In reconciling the natural realm, Jesus reverses the consequences of sin. As Jesus himself declares in Revelation 21, Behold, I am making all things, not some things, I am making all things things new. So this reconciling work that Jesus comes to do includes the natural realm. But this work of reconciliation also refers to Christ's gracious work in you and me, making sinful people right with the holy God. We are reconciled to God through faith in Christ. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul speaks about this as well. He says, In Christ God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. Not counting their trespasses. See, our trespasses, our sins, that's the problem. That's the thing that makes reconciliation with God necessary. That's the thing that makes relationship with God impossible. Unless that sin is dealt with, we cannot be reconciled with God. We are at enmity with him. We are his enemies. Sin is what alienates us. You can even look further on in in Colossians 1 and verse 21. Speaks about our former condition. You who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. That's who we were separated from God. But Christ has drawn near to reconcile all things. And what that means for you and me is that our sin must be dealt with. Jesus came to address the sin that separates us from God so we could be restored relationally, so we could be reconciled with our maker. Romans 5.1 says, Since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. There's no other way to be reconciled. Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father. No one is reconciled with God. No one can draw near and enter into a right relationship with him except through me. It's Christ alone who is the one who reconciles us to the Father. Through Jesus, we have peace. No more hostility. No more condemnation. No more wrath. No more judgment. You say, how does Jesus accomplish this? Does he just snap his fingers and pretend like it never happened? No. 
Look back in Colossians chapter 1. Through him to reconcile to himself, verse 20, all things, whether on earth or in heaven. How? Making peace by the blood of his cross. The means by which Christ secures this peace with the Father is his death on the cross. There is no other way. Jesus is the necessary substitutionary sacrifice for you and for me. It's his death on the cross. The blood here that Paul refers to signifies sacrifice. It signifies atonement. It signifies the cleansing that is necessary because of our sin. Ephesians 1.7 says, In him, in Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, through the blood of his cross. That's what blood signifies. The cross here signifies humility, shame, suffering. Jesus takes our place, dies our shameful death. He bears our shame. The wages of sin is death. Jesus comes to deal with that through his death. This cross work is the means by which he deals with our sins, deals with the very thing that separated you and me from God. And if you try to fix that problem without Christ, you will have no success. The only way that sinners like you and me can be saved is through Christ. I love what we find in Colossians chapter 2. If you just flip the page over in verse 13 at the end there, it says that God has forgiven us all our trespasses. Verse 14, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Think about that for just a moment. This glorious Christ, the supreme creator and sustainer of all things, The head of the church, the firstborn from the dead, he shed his blood for you and for me. And it was necessary because of your sin, because of my sin. He suffered and died on the cross so that we could be reconciled to God. This is a marvel. It's a marvel. And if it's overly familiar to us, we have not freshly considered and understood the beauty and the horror of the cross. I love the old hymn that we sing, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross On which the Prince of Glory died, My richest gain I count but loss And pour contempt on all my pride. That's the response that you and I should have when we consider that the supreme Christ, the one who is preeminent over all things, shed his blood for us to reconcile us to God. It's a powerfully humbling truth. But what about those who do not believe in this good news? What about those who reject Christ? They do not honor him as preeminent. They do not trust in his work on the cross. Colossians 1 says that he's going to reconcile all things. So does this include unbelievers? Does this include fallen angels, Satan and his demons? Does reconcile to himself all things mean that everyone will be saved and that hell will be eternally empty and everyone receives eternal life? There will some who, who will, would read this text and claim that. But here's a very simple 
exercise for you. Anytime someone brings a, a challenging doctrine, seeking to teach something different than, than what we've always heard from Scripture, zoom out just a little bit and read the context. I think we find the answer to that question right here in Colossians chapter 1. Through him making peace by the blood of his cross, verse 20. So all things reconciled through Christ, verse 21. And you who were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him, okay? But look at verse 23. If, indeed, you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Did you catch that little word at the beginning of verse 23? We experience this reconciliation with God through the cross of Christ if, if, if we continue in the faith, if we believe in Christ, and if our belief and our faith in Christ is the genuine kind of belief and faith in Christ, the genuine kind of belief and faith that continues to the end. A counterfeit faith shifts away, trades Jesus out for something else after you get bored with the gospel for a while. A counterfeit faith falls away and doesn't follow Jesus anymore, giving evidence to the fact that the roots of the gospel never went below the surface. No, Colossians does not teach that all people will be saved, will be cleansed from sin, will be forgiven and welcomed into heaven. That's not the testimony of this text of Scripture. There is contingency here. Faith and repentance are a necessary response to the cross work of Christ. But it's not just Colossians. We see this elsewhere in Scripture as well. In John 3, 18, it says, Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Those who reject Christ, Scripture says, do not have peace with God. They are condemned. In Matthew 25, verse 41, Jesus, describing what will happen at the future judgment, says to those on his right, he will welcome them in. It says, then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. In verse 46, it says, And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. In 2 Thessalonians 1.7, it says, When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus... They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. Colossians 1 does not teach that all men will be saved or that hell will be eternally empty. It says he will reconcile to himself all things. And what that means for believers is that we have peace with God through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. But reconcile means other things for the creation, the creation does not need sin forgiven, necessarily. But God will, through Christ, reconcile the created order. So how does reconciliation apply to the enemies of Christ? Well, consider that reconcile can have a broader meaning than just salvation. Reconcile can simply mean 
a change, a change that resolves conflict. But you know, there's two ways to, to resolve conflict. One way is to make peace. The other way is for one party to completely destroy the other. Then there's no more conflict, right? No more conflict at all. Problem solved. Jesus, in reconciling all things to himself, is going to bring harmony, going to bring peace, is going to bring the shalom talked about in the Old Testament to the universe. And he's going to do that in part by reconciling sinners through his death on the cross. But he's also going to balance the ledger and square all things away by bringing judgment to his enemies. Part of Christ's work of reconciliation does include restoring creation and redeeming those who believe. But part of this work will involve judgment and triumph over his enemies. In Psalm 110, verse 1, this messianic psalm speaking of the future Christ. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter rule in the midst of of your enemies. 1 John 3, 8 says, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Colossians 2, 15 says that Jesus disarmed the rulers and authorities. These are the, the fallen angels, the spiritual powers at work in the world. He disarmed them and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. In subduing his enemies, Jesus will bring peace and harmony, and restoration, shalom. Not through salvation, but through a forceful victory. As we read from Philippians 2, one day, every knee will bow. Some knees will bow joyfully, willingly, gratefully, with hearts full of worship for Christ. Some knees will bow in terror because they've been triumphed over. Because their unbelief and rejection is now being exposed as the risen Christ returns to establish his throne in power and reconcile all things, square all things away, balance the ledger, settle every score, and bring renewal to his creation. One day every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess, will acknowledge that Jesus is Lord. All his enemies will be subdued. The wicked will be judged. Satan will be cast into the lake of fire. And there will be eternal peace. No more conflict. No, no more rebellion. No more curse. And in this way, Jesus will complete the task of, of reconciling all things to himself. Christ is supreme. Supreme as the author of creation, but also as the author of the new creation. The one who is redeeming and restoring and renewing his good world. He's not just the maker and sustainer. He's also the savior. And he's the judge. The one who will reign in power. Not just over the church, but over the entire cosmos. And our only response to this truth that Paul rehearses here can be to agree with him that in all things... He must be preeminent. So again, we ask ourselves the question, where does this leave us? If Christ is supreme in the church and supreme in the cosmos, is he supreme in the heart of the Christian? What about you? I want to invite you this morning 
to believe the supremacy of Christ must be seen. Believe that this is true. And there's hope here. There's hope for us who, who wrestle with sin. There's hope here for us who are grieved by a world that is broken and distorted. That Christ is supreme and he is dealing with all of these things. This is faith. This hymn discloses to us the essential truths about who Jesus is and what Jesus came to do. These are truths that must be fully seen and known and believed. But the supremacy of Christ also must be embraced. You must receive Christ as preeminent. He is preeminent. Whether or not you acknowledge it, whether or not you like it, whether or not you love it, he is. But you must respond to that with an open and submissive and humble heart. This is repentance. These doctrines call for a personal response of submission to Christ. Turn from pursuing anything else. Bow the knee to him. Resolve to repent of your idolatry and hold up Christ as preeminent in your heart. So this preeminence, this supremacy must be seen and believed. That's faith. It must be received and embraced. That's repentance. But finally, this supremacy of Christ is something that must be declared. It must be declared. These doctrines are a matter of eternal life and death for the world. This is the good news of salvation that all must hear, that Jesus is God in the flesh who is drawn near to reconcile sinners through his death. This is good news that also comes with a warning. One day Christ will return and every knee will bow and he will judge those who reject him. This is a message of Christ's supremacy that must be declared to the world. You and I have been called and commissioned to take this message to the world. Do you have the faith this morning to not just believe that this is true, but to proclaim it? Do you really believe that Christ is preeminent, that he is saving sinners, that he will triumph over his enemies? Do you believe it enough to confess it verbally to those who would sneer, to those that would shake their head, to those that would yawn in indifference? Christ calls us to be ambassadors for him. 2 Corinthians 5 says we've been entrusted with the message of reconciliation to tell the world about this Christ, about what he is doing. And it really doesn't matter if people want to hear it. It really doesn't matter if people choose to believe and submit to him or if they reject him. Christ is supreme, and we are called to declare this message. Do you have the faith to believe it, to declare it? Do you have the compassion to invite other people to experience his gracious work of reconciliation through the cross? And to escape the wrath that is to come. Do you have the compassion to share that message with people? Because, friends, there's a lot of people that we know. There's a lot of people in this town who are separated from God, alienated by sin, and destined for judgment. Will you tell them the good news? Will you? Will you tell them that the Christ who came to earth and shed his blood on the cross now offers reconciliation to them? You know, we want our church to grow. We really do. We want more people to come here. But, you know, when, when other believers come and join in with us, we're thankful for that. We praise God for that. We hope we're a blessing. But you know why we are here? 
We exist to tell a lost world about this Christ. That's really who we're trying to reach here in Lawrence, Kansas. And it will never happen if you don't tell them. This message about Christ must be declared. The world is broken and suffering under the curse, but our king is a savior who is building his church. He's reconciling sinners to God, and one day he will complete his work of reconciliation by triumphing over his enemies and restoring the creation to its once very good condition. He is the head. He is the firstborn. He is the beginning. He is God in human flesh, the reconciler, the savior, and he must be, must be preeminent. Father, as we read your word, we are excited to see the glory of Christ, excited to recognize the profound mystery that that the divine God was clothed with human flesh and walked among us. We are excited, Lord, to see that you haven't given up on this world, that you entered in and you intend to save a people for your own glory and to renew the entire created realm that one day all things will be made new. That excites us. It thrills us. And God, we are so thankful that we get the privilege of participating in this because, Jesus, you shed your blood. But God, I pray that you would give us a burden for those who are outside your church, a burden for those who at this point have not yet been reconciled to you. God, give us the courage and the faith and the compassion and the love the boldness to declare this truth of your supremacy. And I pray, Father, that you would, through this church, continue your plan of reconciling sinners to yourself. We pray, Lord Jesus, that you would enable us by your spirit, that you would receive all the glory, that you would be preeminent in our hearts, that you would be preeminent and supreme in this church. Lord Jesus, we pray that you would come quickly. We pray in your name. Amen.